I know what maybe some of you might be thinking. How's he going to preach an Easter message out of that? Uh, that's a good question. Let's find out. <laughs> I promise you, you've probably never heard an Easter sermon out of 2 Samuel chapter 3, I'm sure. Um, as we have been going through the Old Testament, uh, really we've been in 1 and 2 Samuel in the summers, we're in the book of Psalms. We spend 10 uh, weeks in the Psalms during the summer. And so we've been, for the better part of a year almost, uh, going into the Old Testament. And that's taken us now into 2 Samuel chapter 3. And to be honest with you, when we come together on Sunday morning, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. So for us, Easter Sunday is not altogether different than the other Sundays that we gather together. It's all about the resurrection. That's what we do every, every week. And so as we've been going through uh, 2 Samuel, it brings us now to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And what I want us to keep in mind, and we've tried to, uh, I've tried to make this clear from the beginning and, and to see every time we encounter any one of these texts in the Old Testament, is the overarching story that is being accomplished throughout the entire Bible. See, we believe that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the entire Bible is really teaching us one big story, and that story is about Jesus. It has Christ at the center of it, no matter what page you're on. So really, in any chapter of Scripture, the, the, it, they're all Easter messages, essentially. We're all going to preach the resurrection, the atonement of Christ. But when we see that the grand story that the Bible is telling is really about God establishing His kingdom on earth and bringing about the salvation of His people through His King and also purging the earth of all wickedness and evildoers, the message of the Bible begins to set on our hearts. We begin to understand what's happening here. So let me say that again. The story that the Bible is telling is about God establishing His kingdom on earth and he's bringing about the salvation of his people through his king. And he's also purging the earth of all wickedness and evildoers. So the whole Bible is telling that story. And he begins that with David. Ultimately, that's going to culminate in Christ. But what we're seeing here in the book of First and Second Samuel is God beginning that story, essentially. He's setting David down as a prototype of the king that is to come. So everything that David is doing is either pointing us toward Christ or showing us exactly what Christ is not going to do. David's going to fail spectacularly. He's going to make tons of mistakes. And in those things, we're going to say that is where the prototype fails, where Christ ultimately will not fail. But what David is also going to do is set forth principles that govern God's kingdom. This is how God operates. And what we can see is that the story of, of the Bible is talking about God establishing His kingdom on earth, bringing about salvation of His people through His king, and also purging the earth of all wickedness and evildoers. So you can see in there both mercy and justice. Mercy and and judgment. God is bringing to the earth mercy in his king, in the salvation of his people, and he's also bringing to the earth justice in the punishing of sin and all wickedness and evil. 
So David forms this prototype, this first king, so to speak, of what God's kingdom will ultimately be like. So we really need to think about, for those of you who haven't been here, and we recognize there are going to be many visitors with us on a Sunday like this, and so it's, it's incumbent upon us to remember what's been happening up to this point. In 1 Samuel, you'll remember about halfway through, Saul is being judged because of his unbelief and his unwillingness to obey God. And so God replaces him as king and anoints David, but Saul remains on the throne. He's still alive. David is sort of a king-in-waiting, the heir apparent. And the line of the kingship is being transferred from Saul's family over to David. Now, as soon as David is anointed king, or pretty soon thereafter, Saul gets very jealous of David and tries to kill him. And so David takes off. He flees. He's on the run. And for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, it is basically Saul chasing down David, trying to kill him, and David trying to avoid Saul and stay alive, essentially. Well, at the end of 1 Samuel, the book closes with Saul's death. Saul commits suicide. He dies there on the field of battle. And the kingdom is now formally transferred over to David. But the problem is, not all of Israel wants to bow the knee to David. That's a different family. That's not the king that we know. It should be Saul's sons that should be king, they think. And so immediately, as soon as Saul dies, David takes the throne, but at least according to God, but the rest of the nation of Israel is thrown into civil war. It's a debate as to which king do you want to submit to. Do you want to submit to David, or do you want to submit to uh, another king, a king from Saul's line? Now, in this story, there are mainly, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 3, there are mainly four power players that you need to keep track of, four characters in this story that you need to remember. Two of them are kings, and two of them are generals. The first king is obviously David. He's anointed king, he is declared king by God, but he is only formally the king over Judah. At this point, only the nation of Judah, only the tribe of Judah, has actually bowed the knee and submitted to David's reign. All the other 11 tribes of Israel are all following the second king, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is Saul's probably only living son or one of his few living sons that remains. He's certainly not the oldest. The oldest three were killed on the field of battle. Ishbosheth is one of the sons that remains the next oldest. And he has been declared king over the essentially the northern tribes, all the, tri- all the other 11 tribes. Judah submitting to David. All the other 11 tribes are submitting to Ishbosheth. Now keep this in mind that Ishbosheth has the vast majority of the people of Israel. Now, Judah is a large tribe. It's one of Israel's bigger tribes. And they're submitting to David to be sure. But the rest of the nation is all submitting to Ishbosheth. So the two kings, David and Ishbosheth. One is the true king over the south, over Judah. The other is the king over the north, the illegitimate king, but the son of Saul. The other two people that you need to keep in track of are Joab and Abner. Now, Abner used to be Saul's right-hand man. He was commander over Saul's army. And now, and, and as such, when you're commander over the army, if you lead the team into battle and you get the victories and all this kind of stuff, when, when you come back home, there tends to be parades for you, right? So people kind of like Abner. He's old, he's Saul's cousin, 
And so he's really close to the throne, and he's done a lot of really good things. He's won a lot of battles. And so people naturally kind of gravitate towards Abner. He has a lot of power and a lot of clout with Israel. As such, when Saul dies, Abner is the one that crowns Ishbosheth king. All right, so he's got a lot of authority and a lot of say in Israel. The other one, Joab, is David's right hand man. He's the commander of David's army, and he's also David's nephew. He's one of three boys that are listed there in the scripture. They're called the sons of Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister. All right, so, so Joab is David's nephew, and he's his right hand man, and little secret. David doesn't really like the guy, it seems. He's kind of skeptical of this guy. He seems kind of like a little bit of a scoundrel. And he does some, well, he does some shady things. Let's just put it that way. And so David doesn't really trust him as far as he could throw him. And so, but he's David's right-hand man. So you've got Joab, who is David's nephew. You've got Abner. And the two don't like each other. In fact, last week what we saw was Joab and Abner brought their men together in this civil war and kind of had a little bit of a contest, which Joab won. Joab was, you know, David's commander of David's armies. David is God's man. David's army won. But one of Joab's little brothers, as impatient as he is, probably the youngest, just going to say, he's probably the baby, ran after Abner and wanted to kill him. And Abner warned him, don't come this way. You don't want to come this way. And he did anyway, and Abner killed him right there on site. So Joab, to this day, is not a fan of Abner because he killed his little brother. All right, So there's that kind of dynamic going on as well. But I want you to look at the very first verse that we've got here in 2 Samuel chapter 3, and you'll see the shadow that's being cast over this entire chapter. It says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This whole chapter is about exactly that. The house of Saul growing stronger and stronger, and the house of, uh, the house of David growing stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul growing weaker and weaker. So we're going to see how both of those things play out. And the first thing we see is right there in verses 2 to 5. How David's house grows stronger and stronger is that he has kids. Lots of kids. Now, if you read verses 2 to 5, it's a little bit problematic, isn't it? Because the way that he has lots and lots of kids is that he has nearly as many wives. And he's beginning to collect more, and he even gets one more in this story. Or he gets a wife that he had back in this story. Now, polygamy, you have to understand, is expressly condemned for the king in Israel. It's condemned in the book of Moses, in the Old Testament law. And yet, what we find here in the story of David is that he continues to collect wives and produce more children because he's collecting more wives. Well, it's problematic, and it actually ends up leading to the ruin of David. So, when we, when we read the Old Testament story, sometimes it's difficult to understand what to make of passages like this. Because it's not like the Old Testament author comes in and says, and David had all these wives and that was a bad thing. That's kind of what we would want him to. We're looking at this passage with New Testament eyes and we're like, come on, tell us that it was bad. 
The Old Testament authors are expecting you to know that it's bad. But then, and, and what you'll find is if you continue to read, it always works out to the detriment of the polygamists. There's not one person in Scripture that has many wives and ends up better off. Now, David's not even as bad as his son, Solomon, that's going to come after him, but it's going to lead to the ruin of both of them. David, on the positive side, is having children, and those children are a blessing. The children didn't ask for this. They're a blessing. The negative is he's having more children than he can actually really parent, all right? And that's a bad thing. And what happens is that the sinful chickens will eventually come home to roost, and that's going to happen much later on. It's going to lead to David's demise. The point is, David's house is growing. But first we want to see how Saul's house is getting weaker and weaker. Look at verses 6 to 11. The story turns on this incident that happens in the northern kingdom. Look at this. Verse 6. While there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David... And Abner was making himself strong in the house of, of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I dog, a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and, I, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now, what we know from this is obviously that Abner is rising to prominence in the north. And it's most likely because, as I said before, he's the commander of Israel's army and he's Ishbosheth's right hand man. And so long as the military experiences some success, then people are going to gravitate towards him. But he's seen and respected by all the people that are around him. And we also know that Ishbosheth seems to be pretty weak, he seems to be something of a puppet king. But what happens, it seems like in this scene, is that Ishbosheth becomes jealous, becomes skeptical, becomes, I don't know, paranoid over Abner's prominence and his prestige and his acclaim that he's getting with all of the people in Israel because he comes to, accu uh, uh, of, to Abner and he accuses him of a sinful act. And that sinful act would basically mean that he's trying to take the throne of Saul for himself. That's essentially what he accuses him of. But it's likely a false accusation. It seems like Abner is saying it's a false accusation. The, the Old Testament author doesn't lead us to believe that the accusation is true. He doesn't say this is what Abner did and then Ishbosheth found out and came to him. He says, Ishbosheth came to him and accused him of this. And he protests, that's not what I did. That's not what happened. Now, the reason that we think it's probably a false accusation is first, because Abner had enough power to take the throne if he wanted it. He could have just had it. 
He didn't have to crown Ishbosheth. He could have taken the throne for himself if he really wanted it. But second, when he's confronted, he doesn't just say, okay, well, you found me out. Now I'll just run you through with a sword or I'll attack you with the armies. He doesn't do any of that now that he's been found out. In fact, he not only protests and gets offended, but he shifts his allegiance over to David in the south. And he's bringing about all that God has promised to David. He's bringing about because of, of what it seems like Ishbosheth's false accusation. But further, we also see Ishbosheth is weak. As soon as Abner protests, Ishbosheth doesn't offer any retort at all. He just takes it. He stands there silent. It says in verse 11, he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. He's a weak guy. Further, in the next part of the passage, when David writes a letter to Ishbosheth and says, I want my wife back that Saul took from me, he just does it. Now, what kind of war is that? Have you ever seen two leaders get along so well in any kind of war? No, it seems like Ishbosheth is there at the beck and call of David. Sir, yes, sir. So Ishbosheth has this weakness about him, which leads to paranoia, which tells us everything we need to know about how Saul's house is getting weaker and weaker. It's through the paranoia of Ishbosheth. It's through his fear and his anxiety. But does that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound just like his dad before him? Now, sure, Saul was tormented by a spirit that the Lord had sent him to torment him. But even before that, Saul had paranoia. Saul had concerns, Saul was scared, Saul was fearful, Saul had lots of doubts, and he couldn't seem to lead the nation of Israel. And we see that he has probably passed that on to his son Ishbosheth. But now we see how David's house is actually growing stronger and stronger. And it's not through fear, it's not through paranoia, it's not even through military might, it's through mercy. David's house is growing stronger. Through mercy, Abner presents this argument to the elders of Israel and then especially to the tribe of Benjamin, who is uh, Saul's tribe, that we should change our support of Ishbosheth and we should go support David. Look at verses 17 to 19. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the, house, and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Do you notice something in particular about Abner's confession here? He knew the whole time who God wanted to be king, didn't he? That's what he tells the elders and all the people in charge of Israel. You know what? Why don't we just do what God wanted from the beginning? Why don't we just shift our allegiance over to the one God has put on the throne? So it's, it's, it's not as though Abner was ignorant of any of this. Abner knew the whole time that David was God's choice. And it's difficult to know what to make of Abner, isn't it? As you read this character, you, you, you kind of want to see him as a villain, but the Bible doesn't seem to paint him as a villain. You have to know when you read the Old Testament text, all of the characters in the Old Testament are not going to be impeccable. 
None of them are going to be perfect. All of them are going to be relatively shady individuals, and all of them are going to have deep, deep flaws, and that includes David. All of them are going to struggle to obey God. But what is remarkable about the Old Testament is that through the crookedness even of all of these characters in the Old Testament, God is still bringing about all the things that He had promised from the beginning when He anointed David to begin with. Even through the crookedness of Abner, even though he, is, he, he seems to be a little bit shady here and there, or we don't know what to make of him, even in the midst of Joab seems to go behind David's back and do whatever he wants, and he will continue to do that. Even through all of those things, God seems to still be accomplishing all that he, all that he had promised to David to begin with. But for whatever reason, whether Abner has come to see the light of God's choice of David, or perhaps his anger with Ishbosheth has just sort of pushed him over the edge. He comes to David, seemingly with hat in hand, making a pledge to David to gladly submit to his reign. So here is Abner leading all the elders of Israel down south into Judah, hat in hand, submitting to David as king. Now, I want to be careful here because Abner, it doesn't seem, is confessing any sins to David. It's not like Abner sits down at the table and goes, you know what, I was, yeah, I was being an idiot this whole time. And will you just forgive me? Because I, I really need, and I just, I'm sin, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm going to declare fast. It's not like he does any of that. But he is quite literally repenting in that he is changing a course of action to a new course of action. He is going from supporting the illegitimate king, Ishbosheth to now supporting God's true king, David. So he is quite literally relenting or repenting of his previous allegiance to an illegitimate king. But the key to all of this is how David receives him. Potentially, David could have killed him. Isn't that what we see throughout history? As enemies of a king demonstrate their weakness to the king, they come to him hat in hand and they submit to him. Don't we see those kings taking them into prison? Don't we see those kings unleashing their armies and striking the nation down? David, it seems, had every right to do that because they've rebelled against God's legitimate king. But how does David receive Abner? In peace. How does he receive the elders of Israel? In peace and in mercy. David has now, or is now, beginning to get all of the nation of Israel on his side. He is about to unite Everybody under his singular monarchy. And how did his house become stronger and stronger? Not through vengeance. Not through strength. Not even by his own hand. Through mercy. Through God's gift of grace. But David's house also grows strong through judgment. Well, Joab who is Abner's mortal enemy, finds out what David has done, bringing Abner into the fold, and he's none too happy about that. Look at verses 23 to 25. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, 
it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. Notice who now has become the paranoid one. This is Joab. Joab is now become the paranoid one. He's convinced that Abner has come in to spy on David and that he's duping David. Now, obviously, Abner has seemed a bit sketchy in the past, but what the Bible tells us is that at the very least, he had a change of heart in whom he was to serve, and David received him gladly and accepted him, and David thought he was a noble person. It's also likely that Joab knows how David feels about Abner, and if David had the choice between Abner as his right-hand man and Joab as his right-hand man, David's probably taking Abner. So Joab projects, this is what I would do if I was coming in. I'd come in under false pretenses just to spy on you. And so I assume that's also what Abner is doing. And so we build to the climax of this story where Joab knows that Abner has gone and he's only about a mile and a half down the road. And so he sends somebody after him. You've got to call for him and call him back. So he sends somebody after him, and he just books it. He gets out there, and he says, oh, David wants you back. And so he comes back, and he finds Abner there. And Abner says, hey, come here, i got to tell you something. And right when he pulls him outside the gate, he stabs him dead. Just stabs him right in the stomach. But here we go. This is where the heart uh, of what this passage is doing is, is going here in verse 28. Look at this. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Question. David learns of Abner's death. And what is it that grips his heart? What is it that causes him to fear? We know he doesn't have the same kind of fear that we see with Ishbosheth or we saw Saul. He doesn't have the same kind of paranoia that those two had who failed to trust in God. What is it that causes David to fear? David is terrified that he would be found guilty in the sight of God for the sin of Joab. That is what causes David to fear. His fear is that because of this sin, God would hold he and his whole kingdom guilty. That they would stand before him in court and God would condemn him to die. So instead, David laments Abner's death. He mourns. He follows behind the casket. He refuses to eat. People offer him bread. You got to eat. And he says, may God do so more to me if I eat before the sun goes down. 
And he's not afraid to let people know it. He does something of a, uh, 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 what is it, a political demonstration. And I don't mean that in a bad way. He's demonstrating before the people that, that, that this, is, this is what needs to happen, that Abner should be mourned. And he's letting the people know that when Abner died, that's a bad thing. We don't want that kind of sin in this country. We're not happy about that. Abner was a good man. And second, he, he's saying that what Joab did, that was a sin. And we don't want to celebrate sin. You need to understand that. And third, you don't want to be any part of that. You want to distance yourself from all kinds of immorality. And what do we find the people doing when David laments in that way? When David pushes away from the sin of Joab, throws him under the bus, so to speak, condemns his brother-in-law, and that is his sister's whole house, he says, I hope every single one of you from here on out that you never lack someone who's outside of the law, who's leprous, who can't get cleansed, and who is a reprobate sinner and who's lost as a goose in a snowstorm. That's a heck of a curse. That's his sister's house that he's putting that curse on. But he's doing so, why? To separate himself from sin. To separate himself from the judgment of God. And the people love him for it. The people celebrate everything about David and love what he's done. And, and look at how it ends there in verse 39. David says this. And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, sons of Zeruiah, that is my sister, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David's house grows stronger through judgment, but not because he's the one judging, but because he's turning the reprobate over to the Lord's judgment. Do you see the line that David is walking? He is walking the line between mercy on one side and vengeance on the other. He deals mercifully with those who submit to him. That is Abner. Abner comes in, though he's been a rebel to the kingdom, he brings Abner in in peace as Abner comes in and makes amends with David and takes a covenant with him. But he leaves the enemies who, who, who don't want to obey him, who actually go around him and deceive those who, whom he's brought in in peace and kill them without his notice. He leaves them to the vengeance of the Lord. He's walking the line between mercy and vengeance. Friends, this is the very reason we come together on Sunday to celebrate the crucifixion of Christ and the empty tomb on Sunday. Because in the cross of Christ, God brought down both mercy and justice. Mercy and and vengeance. We sang the song, Look to the Hillside, where justice and mercy embrace. See, when we look at the cross of Christ, we're, we're glad about the mercy. We're glad about the grace. 
that he's brought to us in Jesus. We see the cross. We see the empty tomb. Praise the Lord. He loves us. He's forgiven us. He's gracious to us. He's given us all things. He has forgiven us. He has brought us into the covenant. He has shed the blood on the cross. And we're happy about that. But do you understand that at the same time, he is bringing down justice on all those who would be outside his kingdom, who fail to submit to the reign of Christ? Jesus raises again on the third day, on Sunday, and he goes to his disciples. And he meets them on the mountainside, and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He is telling his disciples, I am the king over all creation. In other words, everything bows before me. The very process the disciples are engaged in, in going and making disciples, is teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded of them. Teaching them to submit gladly to his reign. So when we look at the cross, and we come under it, and we we bow our knee to Jesus, and we say yes to Jesus, we're glad about the forgiveness that he's given to us in the cross. We're glad about eternal life that he's purchased for us by his resurrection. We're glad about all those things. But do you understand that it is only for those who submit gladly to his reign? It's not for those who would rebel to his authority. So then the question for you is just the thought of standing in front of God on judgment day and being declared guilty strike fear into your heart as it does for David here. That's the question. That's the question every single Sunday. Does the thought of being declared guilty in God's courtroom strike such fear into your heart that you would do everything you can to be rid of sin? Listen, if it doesn't, I can't do anything for you. I can't read enough Scripture to you. I can't preach clearly enough. I can't say enough right words. I can't do enough right things. This church can't do that either. If the thought of standing before God in His own court and being declared guilty does not strike fear into your heart, there is nothing anyone else can do for you. But pray. that Maybe one day, Your eyes will be opened. That God will help you to see your sin. In fact, you should ask for that. That He would give you a clear picture. That He would help you hear the sound of a guilty verdict being read for all eternity. Because unless you hear that, unless you understand that, and unless that strikes fear into your heart, you will never understand the gift of grace and mercy that He has given to you and that He offers you freely in Christ. But maybe, and maybe just now, there is a bit of fear there. Maybe that's just now come to you, I pray. And you think, I, 
I don't want to be declared guilty before God. I have good news for you. You see, 2,000 years ago, Christ died on the cross. His, God's only begotten Son came and lived a perfect life. Living to the righteous standard that God requires for every single person. He lived it. And instead of taking all the rewards that he rightly deserved and hogging them for himself, instead he took your punishment and went to the cross and died for your sin and gave you all the righteous rewards that he earned. And they can be had by faith. So the good news for you is if that strikes fear into your heart, the thought of being declared guilty, you can confess your sin to him. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your past is. I don't care about any of the baggage. I don't care about any of those things. You can confess your sin to him. I don't care what kind of treachery you've pulled. I don't care what kind of allegiance you've sworn to other kings or other trinkets or other treasures or other pleasures of this life. I don't care what your past looks like. What Jesus declares to you is that he is gentle. You see David here declaring himself gentle. I've been more gentle than these people out here. David is just the tip of the iceberg. He's just the beginning of God's kingdom. What we see ultimately in Jesus is one that exceeds David's gentleness in spades. In fact, he tells us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and find rest for your souls. David seem gentle? It's nothing in comparison to Christ. He is quick to forgive. He's kind. And he offers you eternal life for free. Yes, he's serious about sin. And yes, you must learn to obey him. It's not, hey, I get this free and then I can go do whatever I want. That's not what he's offered. That's not submission to Christ as king, you do have to learn to obey him. But he also promises that he's patient. And that he brings you along little by little. And that he grows you and encourages you and he brings a church around you to join with you, to encourage you, to correct you, to teach you, to train you in righteousness. But you understand this gospel is not just for the unbelieving this is for the believing too. The empty tomb is for us. Do you remember what Christ did for you? He died for you too, Christian. You were not so good that He just had to save you. You were an enemy. And while you were an enemy, Christ died for you. He brought you into his kingdom. So when you look at your own enemies, those who would seek to do you harm, do you look more like David or more like Joab? Would you rather get revenge, get the upper hand, take back what's rightfully yours? Or like Jesus, would you forgive? 
Easter is for both. The gospel is for everybody. To those who believe, it's the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for what it means. We're grateful for the empty tomb. We're grateful for the salvation that we have in Christ, in Christ alone. There's no other good thing that is of me, for sure. But that Christ died for me. I pray that that be our anthem and our cry in Jesus' name. Amen.